Well, it's good to be back. It's been uh, a month since I've preached, so it's good to be back. I wonder if I know how to do this still. I'm nervous, if you can uh, imagine that. And uh, it's been a month since we were in Luke's gospel, and this morning, Lord willing, we will finish Luke's gospel. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, there are some there in the seats. I encourage you to have one open, whether that's a physical Bible or a digital one. Uh, You'll be served well to have a Bible open. And if you're new looking at the Bible, kids or adults alike, big numbers are the chapter numbers and small numbers are the verse numbers. And we're in Luke chapter 24. We left off four weeks ago at the end of verse 12. And so we're going to look at Luke 24, 13 through the rest of the gospel. As you're turning there, I remembered this week that in 2010, I read a life-changing, life-altering book a children's book called the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And every night I would read a chapter of the book to my daughter and we would discuss it. Each chapter kept, as we went through it, kept pushing and prodding and moving the reader forward. And unlike many other children's books, and I read a, a, a bunch to that point, this book didn't make all of the, 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 the Old Testament stories about a hero and that we could, we could emulate this hero and, and be like them too. Now the book kept pushing you forward, longing and hoping and dreaming of a true hero that would come. Of someone to come rescue his people. And the story, this, this is a kid's book, you know. And, and I'm just drawn in. I I wanted to read more every night, but I just read one chapter, and it just kept pushing us forward. And I should have been warned about this. This is what she says at the beginning of the book. She writes this, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what God has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make very big mistakes, sometimes on purpose, and they get afraid and they run away, and at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, his everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is that it's absolutely true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story whispers his name. He is like the the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. i got to be honest, when I got this book and started reading it to my daughter, I didn't realize I'd be floored by a children's book. 
but it changed how I read the Bible. It changed me. Systematic theology is a good thing. We should use this method of understanding the Bible for synthesizing our beliefs about what the Bible teaches, but a, a biblical theology grabs our hearts and points them to the center of it all, Jesus Christ. We should read the Bible not as 66 separate books, but as a single book with a single plot, God's glory shown to us through Jesus Christ. This is why at the onset of beginning my time serving this church as lead pastor, we have altered between preaching New Testament to Old Testament, back and forth. Lord willing, we'll begin a short series next week in the book of Amos as we look at that book for God's glory shown to us through Jesus Christ. It's not nearly as obvious and repeated as the Gospel of Luke. We have to dig a little deeper and and have a better awareness of our Bible when we're in Amos. But if we're listening, if we're looking, if we're understanding the Bible as a whole, we will see God's glory as shown through that hero, Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to finish Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel is the longest of the books in the New Testament a book that we began preaching through, that I began preaching through in June of 2020. So we come to the end, 55 sermons later. Way to endure. Good job. It's a book where Luke set out at the very beginning to write an orderly account, an amazing account to, to give to this Theophilus concerning certainty. He says this, the things that you've been accomplished were fulfilled among us to, to bring certainty to him as he understood who Jesus was and why he came. And Luke is instructing his readers as to, as to where their true certainty can be found. And so we're going to finish Luke's gospel, Lord willing, this morning. And so I pray that we would come away as a church family to understand even more certainly and amazed of who Jesus is and why he came to earth. So here's the main idea. Really short. You should be able to memorize it even, okay? The main idea, the Lord is faithful to his word. The Lord is faithful to his word. And there's three points as we walk through this remaining chapter. The scriptures fulfilled, verses 13 through 35. The disciples commissioned, verses 36 through 49. And the Lord ascends, verses 50 through 53. So it's been four weeks. So I'll remind you back of where we're at here. What's point number one, the scriptures fulfilled. If you remember, four weeks ago when we left off in Luke 24, it is Easter Sunday. The woman go to the tomb in the first 12 verses there to anoint the body of Jesus. They didn't expect him to be alive, and they they come find an empty tomb. And and, and they find angels, and and they begin to be taught to be reminded of the word and and to help their hearts to be settled on on who they came to worship. And the empty tomb wasn't enough, though. They They needed to be taught. They needed to be shown from the scriptures. And we find the same here in the rest of the chapter. And we'll pick up in this story of two walking on the road to Emmaus. So look at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them said, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? 
And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's pause there. As I was reflecting on this this section, I, I, I see the extraordinary patience and love of our Lord Jesus as he comes and approaches these two walking to Emmaus. They should know better, but they don't. They're sad, they're, they're despondent and grieved at what they, what they witnessed in Jerusalem. And we see what, what they just experienced in Jerusalem was still very much fresh in their minds. It, it fills their conversation. This is the topic. This is the only thing they're talking about. And Jesus draws near to them. Jesus was there in their despair, and he hears it all, though they don't realize it. Jesus was right there, there when they were mourning and despondent. He was near to them when they thought they had no hope. And I wonder, could it be the same for you today, friends? You're walking in darkness and downhearted and mourning the way that life has gone and the darkness has enveloped you. And you can't quite see how close the Lord truly is. Your darkness, friends, may be only inches away from true life-giving light. The Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted. And as we'll learn later this morning, Jesus Christ is closer to you right now than he was to sinners and sufferers of what we read in the Gospels. Through his Spirit, Christ's own heart surrounds his people with an embrace that is nearer and tighter than any physical embrace. So don't get focused on the darkness that that circles you. Remember Christ through his spirit who is there to comfort and to encourage you. What we read here is that Jesus walks up to these two, begins to to ask them some questions. He's kind of coy about this, right? Verse 16, that says, though, that their eyes kept from recognizing him. They didn't prevent themselves from recognizing Jesus. Someone else did. They were, in effect, walking and talking blind. And, and strangely enough, they open up their hearts to this stranger. It, it would have been a risk even, you know, of what they say about the religious leaders. But they just, they, they open up and they let the floodgates go. Verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. They didn't realize how deeply they needed to be redeemed. And and this is an absolutely wonderful phrase here that comes out of their mouths. 
And we say, they say how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and to crucify him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They crucified him. But we had hoped that he had come to redeem Israel. Do you see what they're saying? And what they're missing? We know the answer, right? We, 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 we can read the whole story and see it all. We know the crucifixion is the way that God redeems but here, this, this Cleopas is saying, we, we thought he was going to rescue us, and instead he was crucified. They don't, they don't understand. They don't know why. He doesn't know, he doesn't know what he's saying. He's, he's speaking truth without seeing the depth of what that truth means, without knowing who Christ was. And he also misses his greatest need. See, when we read the word redeem, we as the church naturally and quickly think it's spiritual. But that's not what he's using that word about here. No, to redeem here means to release from some type of slavery. And and there was only one type of slavery that was in the minds of people now, right? Cleopas thought that the only problem that he had was to be released from political slavery. He believed and wanted that Jesus to be the Messiah of the world, like King David, who's going to come and fight their worldly battles and to rescue them. You see, what they wanted most was to be rescued from the Romans. That was their biggest need on their mind. They needed political salvation, economic salvation. And, and if they were to get that, then everything would be all right. And see, Cleopas believed that the only problems he had in his life were his circumstances, If he could change his circumstances, then everything would be fine. But that's not why Jesus had come. There was still yet a deeper bondage. There was a deeper slavery. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ came because we're all spiritually slaves to sin. All of us are slaves. We are in bondage and there's no way out on our own. And we don't see it. We can't see it. We're blind to this bondage. See, these two walking on the road can't see it. They didn't see their spiritual bondage. And he believes, they believe, that they only need one kind of redemption. A worldly redemption. Someone to, to come clean up their circumstance, to make things better, to get rid of the bad guys, to correct the trajectory of their life. Change my circumstances, please. And I wonder, friends, are you like Cleopas this morning? Do you understand what a slave you are? Do you see your need for spiritual redemption? If we're honest with ourselves, there's many that are walking on the road to Emmaus, just like these two. You don't see your need for redemption. You're walking away from hope. You're you're walking in disappointment. You're walking away from the church. You're trying to solve life's problems with the things of this world and rejecting the one who came to conquer your greatest struggle, sin. And so in God's magnificent providence, he draws you to the church And you come not necessarily looking for salvation, but you're looking for a change in your circumstances. Some come into the church 
because they're scared they're going to lose their marriage. Their circumstances are without hope. Some come into the church because they're worried they're going to flunk out of school. And they cry out to God to help them. They need some, some help to get through school, to fix their marriage, to fix this relationship. And they come as a sufferer wanting help, not as a sinner needing salvation. And you come hoping for a change in circumstances because that's where you think your slavery really is. But the problem is, is that's not where your slavery really is. You're enslaved deep down. And until you see your sin, your life won't change. Jesus said in John's gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin is a power that must be broken. It's a tyrant that must be defeated. This is the condition that the entire world is in prior to faith in Christ. We are, we come into this world and we're held captive by our sin and we live every day according to the edicts of our master and according to our captivity. And the, the human race is hopelessly and helplessly held captive in nature's dark night. However, when faith in Christ is realized, our condition changes. See, Jesus says two verses later in John 8, so if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I mean, we sing about this. We did it this morning. Did you notice? And can it be? He says, long my imprisoned spirit lay. That's talking about captivity to sin, friends. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We sang about it this morning. The hymn teaches us this truth. And we learn from the scriptures that it's the Son that sets us free. We can't free ourselves. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who rescues us from our slavery to sin. So friends, have you called out to God through Jesus Christ for salvation? Are you convinced that you've got everything under control? And I'll be blunt this morning, friend. You don't have everything under control. If you're living without Jesus Christ, you're living recklessly. And there will come a day, friend, perhaps soon, where you will give an account for your life. And so I plea to you to turn to Jesus Christ, to trust in him through faith and what he accomplished on the cross, to trust in him alone. And the Son will set you free. And if you're free, you're free indeed. Well, Jesus knows as he's walking with these two that they don't understand their plight. They don't understand what what their situation is. And, And where does Jesus go to teach them? He goes to the Word, to the Old Testament. There is no New Testament yet. He goes to the Old Testament He says, old foolish ones and slow to heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter in his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures as things concerning himself. 
See, these, these, these guys might know the facts of the gospel, but they don't know the face of the gospel. And Jesus begins a Bible study on their walk. And I wonder, I just wondered this week what that would have been like. We need to realize, though, that it is, it is more crucial for these two disciples to hear Christ than to see him and recognize him. It is on purpose they can't recognize him. So it's more crucial for them to hear the word and hear it expounded and taught than to see Jesus. They have to have their noses pressed into the scriptures. See, he could have just unveiled himself right away, but that wouldn't have helped them, reassure them of, of who God is and God's plan. No, they need to hear and understand the word. They need to see how it was connected and made sense. And they're most definitely grieving. They're hurting because of what they had just understood and seen to happen. The one they had longed for to rescue them had died and the religious leaders were behind it all. But their greatest need right now wasn't relief. They must not nearly, merely get relief. They must understand who Jesus is and why he came. They must grasp what sort of Messiah he is. Otherwise, they would be making him into something that he's not. So Jesus would need to come and correct them to see that the Messiah would need to come and suffer first before glory. He is in effect saying to them, you are bewildered, you, you are grieving, you're hurting because you don't understand yet that the Messiah had to first suffer to pay for sins and then rise again to life. See, the disciples had, had all the pieces of the Old Testament in front of them, but until Jesus put the pieces together properly, they failed to understand the scriptures. They failed to understand the Old Testament. Luke doesn't tell us what he shared. I, I am curious. I, I want to find them in heaven and ask them, what was the sermon about? I, I wonder, did he go back to Genesis 3? I think so. The prophecy of the victorious man who would crush the serpent's head, but first he would suffer on the heel. I mean, it sounds like suffering, then glory. Or maybe Leviticus 16, the, the day of atonement. Remember the two goats, the one whose blood is shed to the cleanse the sanctuary and the other one lives. And remember how the high priest presses his hands down on the head of the, the live goat as he confesses Israel's iniquities over it and transfers them and puts them on the head of the goat and it wanders off into the wilderness, in effect carrying away their sins. Isn't that a picture of Yahweh's servant and, and what we see in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, that he just walked through Isaiah 53, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, for he had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, and he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. I just wonder what he, what he expounded in that moment. And Jesus doesn't try to hide the truth from these two. No, he reveals truth to them. That Jesus Christ is the central sun that shines light on the whole of the scriptures. As John Calvin put it, the Old Testament is the shadowy revelation of God, true but dim. The New Testament is the substance. Christ was the true deliverer and king 
of whom all the judges and deliver in Jewish history were the types. Christ was the true seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's heel. The true seed in whom all nations would be blessed. The true Shiloh to whom the people would be gathered. The true scapegoat. The true brazen serpent. The true lamb to which every daily offering pointed. The true high priest of whom every descendant of Aaron was a figure. Jesus Christ was the hero that they were longing for. He was the one to bring rescue that they really needed. Friends, Jesus believes the whole Bible is about him. So that means we cannot think the Bible is about us. We don't properly read our Bible until we see how it connects to Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, we shouldn't take this to mean that Jesus believed that every word in the Old Testament is literally about his death and resurrection, but rather every part of the Old Testament pointed forward and prepared God's people for his king who would come and die and rise again for his people. See, the Bible reveals more than a picture for us to enjoy. The Bible reveals a person for us to love and to know personally. See, Jesus is the key that unlocks the whole meaning of the Old Testament. And without Jesus, we don't understand what God was doing. And so friends, when you read the Bible and you read the Old Testament, read it as Jesus would. Know and understand the Bible's all about him. Look at verse 28. They drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he's at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. What we find here is Jesus becomes the host for a moment. He's the one breaking bread. And as he breaks bread in that moment, they can see him. And I wonder what that was, what is it that caused it? Obviously, if they're not the ones choosing to see or not see, it was someone else. But I wonder what, what situation it was. You know, did they see his hands as he grasped the loaf of bread and see his, the scars where the nails were? I really think, and, and this is just conjecture, their minds rushing back to the Sea of Galilee with thousands surrounding Jesus, 5,000, 7,000, how many thousands? And Jesus takes a few loaves of bread and fish. In Luke 9, verse 16, it talks about that. The magnitude of people hungry. Jesus takes the fish and he takes the bread and he blesses it. And do you know what he does next? He breaks the bread. I don't know if you know that. Most of you, if you grow up eating Wonder Bread, this means nothing to you. (laughs) There is no crackle with Wonder Bread. It's like a, but if you grew up, if you were in this time, have you ever been to Europe? The symphony of crackle. The sound of a a good loaf of bread that come out of the oven. Some of you are smiling because you know what I'm talking about. And and you get it and it's warm and and you break it open. You know, food has that way with us. Smells, you know, certain smells. I always think of John 20, or the end of John 20 or 21, when Jesus comes and he's around the fire. 
and he's restoring Peter. Do you remember that story? You know, I, I always wonder, Peter would have most definitely remembered that time because it's not just what Jesus said to him, it's the smell of the fire. So every time Peter smelled fire, he would remember what Christ said to him. These senses have something to do, and I, and I just wonder, just the breaking of bread. I mean, every time I, I hear breaking of bread, I think of Sweden, I think of Europe. My mind just rushes back to these memories, and I have no control over it. And I just wonder in that moment, just the breaking of bread, these, these men just flash back to that moment. Jesus standing before the large crowd, blessing it, and then with an amazement seeing a, a few loaves and a few fish feed thousands of people and realize this is the one. He, he is the Christ. They know him. They recognize him. They see him, and then he vanishes. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, to Peter. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. See, once they realize it's Jesus, they, they turn right around. I don't know how far they made it to Emmaus. They turn right around and go back to Jerusalem that same hour. And they find the 11. See, their hearts burned because the light of the scripture had been turned on and it was heating it up. All that they'd heard, all that they knew is, is there. The Bible tends to do that, friends. The more time we give to it, to read it, to understand it, the more it burns within us and gives meaning to our life. These two had hearts from slow to burning and they realized that their eyes had not been closed to Jesus, but they had been blinded by their false hopes. It was only through God's power that they could now see and they understood that the scriptures were fulfilled. In Jesus. Friends, the Lord is faithful to his word. So first, the scripture is fulfilled. Second, the disciples' commission. Look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is, as I myself Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you, ever any, have you anything for eat, to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So the traveler and Cleopas discuss what had happened with them, and they, and they are with the eleven, and they're discussing this marvelous thing, and, and, and Jesus appears. At this point, we don't see this in, in Luke's gospel, but we know in John's gospel, they're hiding away for fear. In, in John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 26 says, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The doors were locked, and Jesus was there. Friends, you can try to lock the door to keep Jesus out. 
but Jesus will find you. Jesus is showing them that a locked door will not stop him. And the disciples are huddled again, most likely in fear because of uh, uh, what might happen with the religious leaders, and they're trying to figure out what to do next. And Jesus, who is God, comes right into their midst, and he doesn't need a key. He doesn't need a door. He's there. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't need your permission. Jesus doesn't knock. He doesn't need your permission to come into your life. He's there, standing among them, and what does he say? Peace be with you. I mean, think about this with these guys. This is Easter morning still. A guy that they think is still dead. They haven't seen him quite yet. And, and, and maybe he's like a ghost or some vision here, and he just shows up in a locked room. I mean, the last thing they're going to feel in that moment is peace, right? Just think, your house is locked tonight. You put your kids to bed, you're in bed, and you roll over, and I'm beside your bed, and I say, peace be to you. <laughs> peace is the last emotion that you would feel in that moment. He'd probably slug me in the face. But Jesus knows what he's doing here. I mean, their lives have been completely rocked. It's upside down. They don't know which way is up. They don't know what to do next. They don't know what, what, what's going to happen. They, they are fearful for their life. They think they're going to die. They're going to be hunted down and crucified just like Jesus. And what do they need? They need peace, real peace, lasting peace, purchased peace. Luke says they're startled. Yeah, I bet they were. They're afraid. Even more, I'm sure they were plagued with guilt for the way that they had let down Jesus. They were troubled and confused by the reports that they heard. Where's Jesus? He's not in the tomb. The lady said it. What's going on? Grief had clouded their minds. J.C. Ryle said, This was a wonderful saying when we consider the men to whom it was addressed. It was addressed to 11 disciples who three days before had shamefully forsaken their master and fled. They had broken their promises. They had forgotten their professions of readiness to die for their faith. They had been scattered, every man to his own, and left their master to die alone. One of them had even denied him three times. All of them had proved backsliders and cowards. And yet behold the return which their master makes to his disciples. Not a word of rebuke is spoken. Not a single sharp saying falls from his lips. Calmly and quietly he appears in the midst of them and begins by speaking of peace. Peace be unto you. What we see here is the graciousness and love of our Savior. His first words are peace. His death and resurrection have achieved peace. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God against the sins of his people, taking away everything that prevented there being peace, real peace, between them and God. 
And in his bodily resurrection, Jesus secured the certain promise that all things would be made new. That one day we would live in a world of perfect peace and harmony. Jesus says, why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. That phrase, I found this interesting, that phrase, it is I myself, do you see it there in verse 39? It translates literally, I am. Jesus is God. He is alive. Jesus' endurance and patience with these men is astounding. All of them had let him down. They have abandoned him. They couldn't understand and their foolishness and pride caused them to turn and run from him and to hide. And we see the patience of God here. He comes with love and long-suffering to draw them to himself. And friends, as we see Jesus' patience with these men, these disciples, I pray that we would be encouraged to be patient with one another. I know for some of you, you're ready to give up on one another because they don't get it. There are some either here or watching online who are ready to give up on the church. Don't, friends. Pray for patience. Pray for long-suffering. I mean, look at his patience with his very own disciples who didn't get it. Who left him. They ran away to protect themselves. And how does Jesus respond? And so friends, pray for joy as you walk with other people in your life. This is just another incredible example of the patience of God. Can we not be kind and patient with one another? Can we commit to not write off people when they don't understand the truth as quickly as we do? Can you show patience to your coworkers who for years have rejected the truth? Can you show patience to your spouse when they don't understand as quickly as you do? Parents, can you show patience to your kids? when they're not responding like we want them to. Don't you realize how incredibly patient God has been with you? See, these disciples are slow to believe. It's, it's almost too good to be true. And in this, Jesus is showing incredible patience. And he's going to prove to them that he's real. He's not a figment of their imagination. He's not a ghost. And how does he prove to them that he's real? He says to them, do you have anything to eat? I mean, it's been a minute since he's eaten last, right? You got anything? Jesus takes fish and he eats it right in front of them to show them without a shadow of a doubt that he is real. He isn't a ghost. He isn't a vision. 
No, Jesus is real. He's really alive, just like he said he would. And the confession of the church of Christ for 2,000 years has been and must continue to be the conviction of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We preach that Jesus is alive. Ghosts don't have appetites. Visions don't sit down and break bread and eat fish. Jesus is alive. And he's proving it to them. And then he continues, verse 44. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, was, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is same as we mentioned earlier. The law of Moses and prophets and Psalms is, is really, friends, just shorthand for the entire Old Testament. And he's, he's teaching, he's preaching to them. And in verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. The word understand here in the Greek literally means to assemble something, to put it together like a puzzle. Question, raise your hand if you've ever put a puzzle together. Those who didn't raise your hand are lying. (laughs) Everyone's done a puzzle, right? When you get a puzzle, right, you get get the box, you see the picture, and you lay out. I mean, the first thing you need to do, right, is get all the pieces up so you can see what they are, right? But it's there. But when you start assembling the pieces together, you see the picture. What's the difference between an assembled picture and the pieces? You're you're, You're not actually looking at any new content, But once they're put together, you see the connection. You see how everything comes together. And it becomes beautiful. You you get it like a light bulb. Oh, that's, that's what it is. And you understand. And that's what Jesus is doing here with these disciples. He puts the pieces together of the Old Testament. And he's saying, I'm the key. I'm actually what unlocks it. So you can now see and understand all of that it's been talking about, all of the scriptures that you knew, they find a fulfillment in me. And he says in verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of the, my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And what we're reading here is the commission for ministry. Jesus is giving this commission for ministry to the disciples, and he gives them really the whole approach to ministry. And there's four areas. This is not in the outline. These are four separate things. So if you want to write them down, I would encourage that. Four areas here. Gospel education, gospel example, gospel evangelism, and gospel equipping. First is the gospel education. In verses 44 and 45, he teaches them the word. You see it? See, if they're going to make a dent in this world, they need to understand who Jesus is and why he came. And where does Jesus go? He goes to the scriptures and he teaches them the word. And we, we need, first, we need to be equipped with the word if we're going to minister for him. Second, is gospel example. Verse 46, gospel example. We see suffering, then glory. 
That's the pattern that we see for the Christian life, for ministry. There are too many Christians that have been sold a false gospel, one that says when you follow Jesus, everything is going to be carefree and easy. And they're lying to you. That you can somehow find your best life now, which results in good health and good money and good friends and ease with every turn. But that isn't true. That's not the pattern that we see in the Bible. Christ would suffer. He would experience rejection and pain and loneliness and then death. And we will suffer too as Christians. Suffering, then glory. We see that pattern throughout. Friends, God works through your suffering, not in spite of it. So don't reject your suffering. Don't run from it. Lean into it and rest in Christ. He's doing a good work in you. When we are weak, he is strong. And knowing Christ, as Paul says in Philippians 3, involves knowing all of him, both the suffering and victory, both weakness and power. The pattern, the gospel example is suffering, then glory. Third, gospel evangelism. In verse 47, we see the commission clearly. They were to proclaim repentance and forgiveness. They can't remain locked in the room, and they're going to do it in Jerusalem first. They're going to go against those religious leaders. We see that in the book of Acts. But they're going to must leave. They're going to have to leave the locked room. They can't stay there. They're going to have to go out and minister to the people who killed Jesus and tell them the good news of the salvation. They are to be his witnesses. And when I think about that, we're all witnesses to something. All of us are. We talk what we're most excited about. We're all witnesses to something. What have your conversations been about this past week? I mean, what has captivated your heart to the point that you just need to talk about it to everyone? Is it your favorite sports team or politics or work or your hobby? We we do this in our careers. In fact, there are careers centered around this. A few years ago, I stumbled upon a job opening at Apple. Okay? You know what it's called? Apple Technology Evangelist. It's still there. Google it. You can become an evangelist at Apple. But you're not spreading the gospel. No, the job was to witness to the Apple app technology to get more app developers to believe and use Apple's platform. They use this word to be a witness. We're all witnesses for something. What are you witness for? Do you talk with the same excitement and fervor as you do about your favorite sports team or your politician or technology or books or your kids? When was the last time you talked that way about Jesus to a coworker, to a friend or a family member? See, we're all witnesses to something. Is it Jesus? That's gospel evangelism, fourth, gospel equipping. Verse 49. And what does he promise in verse 49? He promises the Holy Spirit. A promise reiterated at his ascension. And when the Holy Spirit came, oh man, the power came. 
The preaching of the gospel was not advanced by, by reciting the scriptures or even declaring the scriptures, but the gospel was advanced when those who preached the gospel were empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is through the Spirit's work. Paul says as much in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. It is the power filling believers who preach the gospel that there's change, that there's new life. And so the disciples here are commissioned, and the approach to ministry was through gospel education, gospel example, gospel evangelism, and gospel equipping. So we've seen the scripture fulfilled, disciples commissioned, and third and last, that the Lord ascends. These last few verses of Luke's gospel, we, we learn from, from Luke's second work, work in, in, in Acts that these verses happen 40 days after his resurrection. So these verses here at the end, verses 50 through 53, are really a bridge for us to get us into the book of Acts. Look at verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. As we read here, Jesus leads them out. He's, he's going to leave them now and he lifts up his hands and he blesses them. This is really a benediction. This is why I raise my hand at the end of each service and give a benediction. Just so you know, it's not a prayer, it's a blessing. You can keep your eyes open and look at me, it's all right, you're not going to freak me out. And this is what Jesus is doing here. The raised hand symbolizes a laying out of hands, it's a dismissal as you leave, setting us off for another week in the Lord. That's what he's doing here at the end of this. It's, it's, it's a benediction to his disciples. Blesses them, prepares them right before he leaves. And, and then he lifts up right before their eyes. I, I want to spend more time. I, I literally, I know I'm running out of time, but I got to the end of the sermon and thought, man, I'm just going to skip really quickly over the ascension. I don't mean to do that. I'm not trying to make light of it, but we'll come back to it when we come to, to the, the book of Acts at some future date. But, but the ascension was Jesus returning home. He's going back to the Father. Back to where he had dwelt in glorious love for all eternity. Only this time, he has the keys of death in his nail-scarred hands. Can you imagine the welcoming party for Jesus when he gets back? But, but the ascension wasn't simply Jesus going home. It was Jesus being enthroned. Scripture repeatedly speaks of the ascension ending with Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father. In Psalm 110 and Acts 2 and Ephesians 1. And this is no ordinary seat. As Jesus told the church in Laodicea, I, I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. See, Jesus isn't retired up in heaven collecting seashells and watching the news and reading the newspaper. He has work still. He continues to serve us, his children. And now finish his, the work of salvation. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 10 says, and he's interceding for his people, and he's present with them by his Spirit. He's interceding for us. It's as if Jesus is saying to God, Father, Jeff did it again, but I'm not asking you for mercy. I paid for this debt, and because I paid for this debt on the cross, see, here's my blood. Because I paid for this debt, 
It would be unjust for you to take two payments for the same debt. Therefore, I ask for acquittal for Jeff. I'm asking for justice. He paid for my sins. And the verdict comes as quickly as the question, I'm innocent because of Jesus' blood on my account. Friends, if you believe in Jesus Christ and he is your ascended Lord, you are in him and you are forgiven. Not because of you, not because of your prayer, but because of Christ. And so the ascension of Jesus Christ is much more than just a, a postscript to the resurrection. It is the return of the king to his rightful throne from which he f- furnishes his rescued people with gifts of service for use in his kingdom. And the chief gift that we receive is Christ himself. Friends, as, as we've just raced through this book and this passage, the Lord is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his word. And we see that over and over in the scriptures. He is worthy to be trusted. Luke has been an amazing book. Truly. A book that I pray would be an encouragement to us in our individual walk, an encouragement to us as a church family as we learn to walk faithfully with our Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we we thank you for the gospel of Luke. And we are encouraged as we've listened to your word. God, I ask that you would help your people to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to rest and rejoice in his ascended glory. And to the degree we do, we become faithful people. We'll become humble people, happy people, and courageous people. People who serve. People who who love and wait with a hope that's real. And please make us all those things. Because it would glorify you and it would be fulfillment of our deepest longings in you. And so Lord, we ask that you continue to give us all things that we ask. Because we ask them through Jesus in accordance to your word. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. May you take it and root it deep within our hearts and may we live it out this week. For we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.